0: Good morning, everyone, and good morning, Zoom. I was trying to think of a pun, like zoom rationers, or I don't know, people who are attending. One, one person thought that was kind of funny. Thank you. Uh, so I want to start this morning. Um, we're going through X. If you've been at our outdoor gatherings over the past month, you, you have already heard that. We're, we're, we're working our way through Acts. This morning we're going to start into the beginning of chapter 5, but I want to start this morning with a question, um, and maybe kids, you can think about this question too, but have you ever been around someone, been in the room with someone, been around someone who has a lot of power? Like, have you ever been in the presence of someone that has a lot of power? Probably all of us have at some point, and you can define power. That can go a lot of different ways, right? But I remember when I was in grad school, I went to a, a large-ish state school um, in Indiana. It was about 25 to 30,000 students. And um, I can remember any time I was in, the, in an event or a room where the, the president of the university showed up, right? Like, the president of the university would be in the room, and there was just this, maybe some of you can relate to this feeling. There was, like, a change in the room, right? Like, wherever she was, there was kind of this sense of, like, people being careful and, like, more, I, I would see friends of mine who I knew really well suddenly act really differently, right, when the president of the university was there. Um, I'd be like, what, what is that about but then I was also doing the same thing, right? So there's almost like this center of gravity around power, where, like, it, it affects how you, how you act. Um, uh, people, you know, sometimes people are Worried about their impression, their what impression they're making more to someone who is very powerful. Um, maybe they're worried about making a mistake more around someone who's really powerful. But my point here is that, and maybe you can think of an example of yourself. It could be someone in your family, someone in a job. I don't know, but I just want you to to, to start here by meditating on this idea of, of what it's like to be in the presence of power. Because my point here is that power, e- even on a human level, power tends to or should have some sobering effects on us, right? Um, when we're in the presence of true power, usually we're more careful. Maybe you're more in awe, like in awe of what you're seeing and experiencing. Maybe more aware of your mistakes, like I said, or the potential to make a mistake. But that's, that's the theme of, um, a major theme this morning, what I want to talk about is power. And I'm starting with the example of human power, but I also want to talk about, ultimately, God's power. Because we've been going through Acts, we've already seen examples of God's power in the stories, right? We've seen um, major revival. We've seen healing. Um, Two weeks ago, we we talked about the healing of the man on the temple steps. We've seen community growth, like thousands of people being added to the community. That's an example of power. Joyful, exciting examples of God's power. But today's today's a, a bit more of a sobering look at God's power. I think it's a reminder that God's power is real. Real. And it's not something to be flippant about. It's not something to treat lightly. It's not. It's definitely, definitely not something to attempt to manipulate, right? God's power is not something to be controlled, not to be attempted to be controlled on our parts. So with this in mind, let me pray for, for us, and then we'll look at the text and talk a little bit about it. Uh, Lord, we... I want to start this morning with the prayer that Jordan gave us a few weeks ago. I pray that we would be acutely aware of your spirit in this room amongst us and everyone that's on Zoom right now. I pray that they would be acutely aware of your spirit in their homes, in their families as we look at this story. Lord, may we be truly brought to a place of awe at your power, the power to change our lives, the power to renew communities, the power to heal. May we treat that with the sobriety and awareness that it deserves, Lord. In your holy name we pray. Amen. So I want to start on the story this morning actually looking at the end of chapter 4 of Acts. So if you have a Bible with you or or have it on your phone or something, go ahead and pull up um, Acts chapter 4. I'm just going to read a few verses from the end of chapter 4. Because this is super important context for the story, the incident we're going to look at, which we already saw kind of a silly uh, representation of Something about the way those little dolls fell over just made me, made me laugh, yeah. Um, all right, so end of chapter four, starting in verse 32. This is a description of the, the, the way the community was functioning, right? And keep in mind, this is coming out of what Ken talked to us about last week, about them praying that the Holy Spirit would give them boldness, right? This is what the community, this is what a community that's emboldened by the Holy Spirit looks like in function. In verse 32, it says, I'm reading in the NIV. All the believers were one, In heart and mind, no one claimed that any of their possessions were their own, but they shared everything they had. And with great what? With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to anyone who had need. And then it gives an example of Joseph, who's called Barnabas, who did just that. He sold a piece of land, gave the money to the leaders of the community, and they distributed it to people who needed it. So the thing about this, a few comments on this setup before we talk about Ananias and Sapphira. Um, first of all, it says that the, the the community was one of one heart and soul. It was not, not divided, no divisions. I think that phrase jumped out to me because we're in such a divided cultural moment, right? But to be one heart and soul um, is a powerful, powerful witness. Um, and one way that this looked, this one heart and one soul, think about this, this, these details are easy to gloss over when we read it today, but people in a very practical, real way were were releasing, they were releasing earthly securities into the community, right? Think about this. This was an ancient agrarian culture. Um, There was no such thing as a quote, social safety net, right? There was no uh, social security or Medicare or anything, no 401ks in an agrarian in an agrarian culture to sell land was in a very real way giving away things that you could depend on for safety and security so just imagine now i want to be careful anytime you preach about stuff like this i want to be really careful that we're not like prescribing you must do these things or else you're not a true christian or you're not a true you know that's not that's hear me clearly that's not what i'm saying Rather, imagine, just imagine for a second, imagine selling your house, especially with the crazy market in Portland right now, right? Imagine selling your home, imagine, or maybe cashing in your 401k. I don't know, whatever, whatever earthly security thing that when you imagine it, you think, you know, when that feeling comes up in you, imagine that, whatever that is for you. Imagine, imagine cashing that in and bringing it to the leaders at the church. And saying, here, just make sure everyone's needs are taken care of. I don't need this, just make sure everyone else is covered, you know. Imagine doing that. I mean, that's that is evidence of power, God's power in the community. And it makes it very clear. I love the phrasing in um, verse 33: God's grace was so powerfully at work in them that this is what it looked like. So I firmly believe. Firmly believe, and we get more evidence of this in the Ananias story. I firmly believe that this exchanging of goods, this selling of land, was not coerced from the top down. It was not something Peter and the apostles were saying. Were, they weren't checking people's bank statements, you know, list of, of assets. They weren't checking that and saying, oh, you haven't sold your land yet. What's going on? It was, it was not coerced, but it was freely given and, and released because God's grace was so powerfully overflowing the community. That is super, super important. And we see Barnabas does that, does just that. A grace-fueled release of earthly security for the good of everyone in the community. It's just such important context. I'm spending a few minutes here because we need to ground what happens next in this reality. Imagine being part of a community that was marked by this. What would the people around us in Portland say if, if that's what we were marked by, right? Like this is a power, God's power at work. And I think this, this image demonstrates the, what, it's, what, what power in God's family is like. Because, think about this, the things that hold power over us, like money, status, privilege, security, safety, those things hold intense power over, our, over us in our human cultures. They have since humans have been around. And God's family, being in God's family, is stronger than those things. Think about that. The things that have the most power over humans, that divide us, that pit us against each other, God's power has more power than those, right? It, it, unroot, it, it, it uproots those idolatries, right? And, and, and to such an extent that people can freely give to make sure others are cared for. This is God's grace and God's power at work. So this sets the stage for what's about to happen. I don't think I'll read the whole thing because we already have heard parts of it. But uh, picking up in chapter 5, this is in direct, direct contrast to what was just happening at the end of chapter 4. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. And Peter said, Ananias, I totally agree with Betsy here that this is, I, I read this as a grieved wrapped his body and carried him out, buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. And Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. And pause there. Let's say a few things about this story. This is a difficult one. Uh, The preaching team, we kind of all fought who didn't have to preach this one. (laughs) Uh, Somewhat, kind of jokingly, kind of not jokingly. I got the short end of the stick there, I guess. Um, It's a tough story, and I think we need to be honest about that. But we also need to not just gloss over it because it's hard. Because there's something about God's power that we need to be reminded of in this story. I think there are clues in this text here that the major issue that's going on with Ananias and Sapphira is an intentional – hear me on that – intentional deception and intentional withholding. Intentional is the key word. It says that with his wife's full knowledge, they, 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 they went through this action. With his wife's full knowledge. This was a premeditated, intentional plan. Right? They plotted it out. They decided what to do. They decided what to say. They decided how to go about it. This was not – this was not a slip-up. It was not a mistake, right? And Betsy already talked about this, but um, it even says, uh, uh, Peter says, Satan has filled Ananias' heart. I mean, this is, this is clues that there's deeper, deeper spiritual things going on here. What I want you to hear is that this was not a, this was not, it was not the case that Ananias and Sapphira just, like, misunderstood what was happening. They didn't think, oh, well, this is what we thought Barnabas did. We just were going to do the same thing. It wasn't a goof, you know. It wasn't a mistake. It was an intentional uh, conspired plot. That's super, super important. And um, it was public. That's also something that's really easy to miss in our culture the way we read these stories. Uh, this wasn't as though Ananias met with Peter one-on-one in his office. <laughs> this was in front of people, in front of the community. Ananias and Sapphira engaged in this deception in front of others. Others were watching as they placed... The money at the, at the apostles' feet, the resources. I think it's possible. We don't, we don't get a glimpse into the motives in the text. It doesn't say why they did this. But I can't help but wonder if part of it was status. Perhaps they saw the accolades. It, again, take this lightly. This is my interpretation. Um, but it's easy for me to relate to this. Perhaps they saw that people like Barnabas were getting accolades for being the ones who were giving the money away. Perhaps they wanted to get status in the community. Perhaps they wanted access to some of that privilege. Perhaps they wanted to look generous. Um, Or perhaps they were wanting to be part of it, but they were wanting to hedge their bets. That's also relatable, right? Perhaps they were thinking, well, let's put aside some of this. If this whole Jesus community thing doesn't really pan out, then we can still, you know, we'll have a nest egg, right? We can go back to life. We're just going to kind of put our feet in both worlds, right? I can't help but think of Jesus saying no one can, like, put their hand to the plow and then look back, right? Um, we, don't, we don't know. We don't know. But I can personally relate to either of those motives, right? Maybe you can too. You know, I want, I want status in the community. I want to be looked at in a certain way. I want to hedge my bets. It's scary. It's scary to put your whole life and trust into something. So we don't know what their motives were. But we know that Satan had apparently filled their heart, and we know that they had intentionally engaged in this deceptive act of withholding resources in front of a community that was being marked by revival and giving of resources away. We know that that's what was happening. And we also know that this action was not coerced. I mentioned that earlier. But I think Peter's response to Ananias and Sapphira makes this abundantly clear. He essentially says to him, the NRSV translation says that... um, Weren't the proceeds at your disposal even after you sold it? Like, it's like, you, you, you could have done what you wanted with this land. Even after you sold the land, you could have done what you wanted with the money. That's essentially what Peter says to Ananias. This is why I think he was grieved. And he gives Sapphira a chance to repent and confess later, right? Three hours later, she comes in, and he gives her a chance to acknowledge what was actually going on, and she doesn't take it, which, which um, contributes to the level of intentional deception they were going through, Right? It, it, it shows you that she was in on, the pl- in on the plan right from the very beginning. This all, by the way, as a side note, this has extreme echoes of Eden. Um, Genesis 3, a couple planning to deceive, right? Withholding the truth. Being in on it together. Um, it's really, and Eden talks about if you do this, if you withhold, if you go against the grain of what God's life intentions for you are, you will you will find death. We see it enacted in this story. So I'm going to emphasize so much, I'm emphasizing so much the intentional aspect of this couple's actions because it is such a stark contrast with the powerful liberation and revival that was happening around them. In the, in the midst of this incredible... Um, uprooting of idolatries and reviving of life and healing and giving away of resources in the midst of all of that, people being freed from greed and scarcity mindsets, lives being transformed in the midst of all of that, this couple in in the center of the community schemed and made a weighty, weighty decision to intentionally deceive everyone who was watching and God this this kind of This kind of scheming, these kinds of intentional decisions, they were cutting directly against all of the transformation that was happening and being unleashed in the community around them. This is not a light thing. God's power is at work around them, and they are trying to get in on it without really getting in on it, and in fact, working directly against it. And I think this story shows us that that is something God takes very, very seriously. Because God takes our liberation and healing and revival very seriously. God, God is so committed to our freedom that God died for it, right? God incarnated and died for our freedom. And so to see us not taking that seriously is something God takes seriously. And I think this is precisely why the story is in the text. N.T. Wright has a great quote um, that has been helpful for me as I've been processing how in the world to preach such a difficult story. Um, He says about Acts 5, he says, uh, we don't don't like these stories, of course, but we can't have it both ways. If we watch, listen to this, if we watch with excited fascination as the early church does wonderful healings, stands up to bullying authorities, makes converts to right and left, and lives a life of astonishing property sharing, if we love all of that, we may have to face the fact that if you want to be a community which seems to be taking the place of the temple of the living God, you mustn't be surprised if the living God takes you seriously. Seriously enough to make it clear that there is no such thing as cheap grace. God takes this, God takes this community seriously. Because we are where God lives. (laughs) That's, that's a huge point in the New Testament is that God's people become the temple, right? Paul talks to that in Ephesians 2. We are built together, stone upon stone, just like the temple, which is where God used to live. God lives in, in this community now. And if we, want to be, if we want to be that community where God is about all the things he listed, healings, confronting the power structures of the world, unleashing the kingdom, if we want to experience that power, then we have to take that power seriously. And to manipulate and lie in the face of that power is a serious thing indeed. Because throughout the whole biblical narrative, throughout the whole thing from page one, the power of God is taken very seriously on every page with sobering awe. And I think this this story is a really good reminder of that. It's actually been good. It's been unsettling, but unsettling in a good way for me this week as I've been wrestling with it. Because the power of God is what can truly transform us. In fact, I would contend as a Christian, it's the only thing that can truly transform us. It's the only thing that can actually uproot idolatries. It's the only thing that can uproot idolatries of politics, of withholding scarcity resources. It's it's the only thing that can renew us and break us free of all those things. It's the only thing that is strong enough to do that. And power like that cannot be manipulated, cannot be taken for granted, should not be taken for granted. So think back to the beginning. If you can remember what it was like to be in the presence of a powerful person, an individual, president of a company, whatever, whatever came to mind for you, think back to that. And then I, I, want, to, I want to urge you to reflect on the fact that we are in the presence of the power of God. We are, we, I believe that. We are in that presence. And that is not, that is not something to gloss over. Because that is the power, again, to undo the deepest idolatries that divide us and hold us captive. That's the only thing that can truly renew us from being worried about money, for example. It's the only thing. We shouldn't be flippant about that. Particularly if we want to witness to that power to a watching world. And I think this this is all why... Luke, who wrote the Book of Acts, did not edit this story out of the narrative. I've been thinking about that this week. like why did he why did he keep this in there? You know, um, It's so disturbing. I think he kept it in there because he wanted us to remember as we read it today, the power of God is real. And by the way, this is um this type of thing it's not like this happens all the time, either, right? Like NT Wright talks about that too. This is not something that's like happens. It's not like a good story, scary story, good story, scary story. It's not like that. There's way more of the uh, healings and uh, powerful um, liberations happening. But, but I think these stories are super important to keep us from becoming um, too flippant and lighthearted about the power of God that we actually um, experience and have access to. I can't help but think of Aslan. Um, if you've read Chronicles of Narnia. You might know where I'm going with this as we enter in this uh, message this morning. But Aslan, in the in the 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 Narnia books, is the um, God and Christ character, who is in the form of a large lion. And there are parts through the books in which he is frightening. There are parts in which he is extremely comforting and gentle. There are parts in which what he's up to is very mysterious. There are times in which you don't know why he's not there. Right. But one theme through the story that actually comes up in a very explicit way is the question of if Aslan is safe, right? Or if Aslan is tame, is the word that's used in the books. And the response is he's not, right? He's good, but he's not safe in the conventional sense. He's a lion, he's not tame. Tame needs to be controlled, right? You tame an animal; it means you have control of the animal. And Aslan is not to be controlled, but he's good. And frankly, if I am going to seek transformation in my life, I want something that's that I can't tame because that needs to be that strong to break the idolatries in my own heart. So God's power—the power to heal power to break these idolatries, the power to make us truly of one heart and one mind, that power is powerful, more powerful than anything uh, we can hope or imagine or bring about. And hear me on this, it is rooted in love. We know that God is good and we know that God is loving to the extent that he poured out his very life for us. And because God is good, We know, and loving, we know that God is trustworthy with God's power, and we should let God be God. We should let God use God's power. Best to allow Aslan to be Aslan, even if being in his presence is occasionally a little scary, occasionally a little mysterious. But I, for one, would rather God the Father wield his power than me try to wield it. or any of you. We know we are in the hands of a good father who is about our freedom, who is about knitting us together into a family that bears his name in a hurting world. That whether whether it acknowledges it or not, a hurting world that needs his loving power and needs his revival. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that even disturbing stories like this are in the text. I thank you that we're reminded not to take your power lightly. I thank you that you disrupted history in such a way as you did in the book of Acts. I thank you that we are in this room here today because of it. Lord, I pray that we as a community would be in sober and loving awe of God who is real and is at work in our midst. pray this all in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Uh, we're going to transition to communion. Um, for those of you on Zoom, if you have elements at home, you're welcome to very welcome to join us. And then after we finish communion, we'll do announcements and the Zoom call, uh, you'll go into breakouts uh, for a few minutes at the end while we uh, tear down the room. Um, so uh, those on the LT, Sean and Rob, I think the only one's here. If you guys would come forward to hand out the elements, please, that'd be great. And if Betsy, if you're still there, if you wouldn't mind, yeah, if you wouldn't mind helping with that as well. Um, they're going to come around with uh, some baskets that have the um, prepackaged uh, cup and wafer. You all, Just let them know if you're not interested in taking communion, you can let them know as they come around. Um, but what I'd ask you to do this morning as you take take the elements... And uh, as you get them, by the way, wait wait until everyone has them, and then I'll guide us through taking them together. Um, As you take them this morning, I encourage you to reflect on uh, the power of God. These elements are representative of the body and blood, the body that was broken and the blood that was spilled. And I encourage you to reflect on the power of God as it manifested in this broken body. Because this is what we believe as Christians. We believe that God's throne, God was enthroned on the cross. This is the ultimate expression of his power by which he shamed the principalities and powers of the world. The most powerful things in our culture and in our world have been shamed by the cross, have been shamed by this blood that was spilled. So I just encourage you to reflect in a sober way on the real power of God that has the power to remake and revive your life as you take the wafer and the cup together. So I invite you now to to open the cup, um, take the wafer, dip it into the juice, and prayerfully receive this, which Jesus said to do in remembrance of him. few words from the Gospel of Luke. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you, for I tell you I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. He took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Lord, we thank you that we could gather this morning. Thank you that we could take the bread and the cup. I pray that we would do so in sober rem- remembrance of your power in our midst. In the holy name we pray. Amen.